the startup, grow up, and scale up journey. This is the Pain of Scale, the Notion Capital Podcast. Hello and welcome back. Missed us? Come on, it's only been a month and we're back for a new series of Pain of Scale. We have a fantastic season coming ahead and yes, release on a weekly basis this time. No more waiting for two weeks. You're not going to miss Stephen's soothing voice for too long between each episode. <laughs> and uh, today in this uh, introduction episode, we've got our surprise guest and I couldn't be more happy. He's a friend. I've met him when I was leaving in Tokyo more than a, a decade ago, actually. I left, but he stayed and and went on to live many fascinating chapters there. And talking about chapters, he very successfully wrote many books and two on the topic of the day, Ikigai. Those who pay attention will remember that we mentioned Ikigai during the summer in our reimagining episode with Marius R06. And this mention, it wasn't scripted, but suddenly right there, Stephen and I realized that we had a similar passion for that Japanese philosophy. And that, that happens a lot, doesn't it, Stephen? We have these yeah. kind of realizations all the time, like our common interest for Nassim Nicholas Taleb as well. It was just yes. whilst we were recording an episode. So it became only logical that I'd reach out to him for this episode. And I'll give you the honor, Stephen, to introduce him on purpose. Yeah. I'm not mentioning his name to our audience. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm beyond delighted to launch this fifth series of our Pain of Scale podcast series with a special guest speaker, and that is Hector Garcia. Hector is the best-selling author of Ikigai, The Japanese Secret to a, a Long and Happy Life. And we were just chatting about it beforehand. And this is a book that just washed over me. And it spoke to me and it really resonated with me, not, not just on a personal level, but the work I do with Notion and really the work that many of our founders do. And, and even though it was disconnected from the startup world, where obviously I'm operating in venture capital, I found it very, very powerful. It was first published in 2016. I discovered it very quite shortly thereafter. So I'm responsible for two of the one million copies um, <laughs> because I bought it twice. And I've dipped into it. I've shared it with lots of people. And effectively, this is all about really connecting us as individuals with a healthy and happy and purposeful life. And Hector recently published a, a second book, The Ikigai Journey, which I finished at about 6.30 this morning. I, I woke up <laughs> thinking about this and I thought, oh, I've got to finish the book. And it's an excellent kind of how-to guide. And I am a bit of a reading nerd myself. That was only published in June 2020. Hector, you lived all over the world. You were born in Spain. You worked at CERN. You were the author of another bestseller, A Geek in Japan. And of course, a good friend of Paul Papadimitrio, which is just such a wonderful piece of serendipity, which you <laughs> mentioned in your most recent book, which I also really enjoyed. Hector, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Hello, thank you. It's an honor to be here. Did you just say, Stephen, you, did you work at CERN, Hector? Yes. So we lived in Japan at the same time. You still live there. I was born in Geneva. That's where CERN is. Ah, more serendipity. I'm going to go for the hat trick. I think you were born in Calpe in Spain. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> I used to spend holidays in Calpe as well. So here we go. Really? We have a hat trick of cities. <laughs> That's serendipity for you, Stephen. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, I love the chapter on serendipity and when accidents are fortunate and, and being able to embrace that kind of randomness in life that brings you together with people. I didn't realize where it came from, from a Persian fairy tale, The Three Princes of Serendip, which I, I just thought was a lovely story. And your second book is full of those little anecdotes. But Stephen, you have to say your perennial sentence, let's jump straight in. Yes. 
Let's just jump straight in. <laughs> For those unfamiliar, could you explain the philosophy of Ikigai? Let's start with explaining the word Ikigai, which is a Japanese word, one of those Japanese words that is untranslatable, but we can try to do it. It has two characters. The first one is life or something that is alive. It doesn't have to be a human being. It can be anything. And guy, the other character, means worthwhile or something that has meaning. Then if you put both things together, it's like something that has life and is worthwhile. You can translate it in French. It would be la raison d'être. Or you could say, is that thing that when you wake up in the morning, it makes you feel like, oh, wow, this day is going to be amazing. I'm going to really enjoy this day. I always say, like, in life, there might be times that you're feeling like this every day, but sometimes it might not be like that. That's okay if it's one or two days. But if it's many, many days and weeks, you might have to think how to recalibrate. I like to see Ikigai as a compass. You can see it in many ways, but I see it as a compass. And when I'm not aligned with my Ikigai, I start feeling it, especially in the mornings. I check with myself, okay, how I'm feeling. This is what Ikigai means, just a word. But let me tell you a story of how I found this word, because now I've been 16 years here in Japan. Paul knows that Japanese is a crazy language. Yes. And when... <laughs> When I, I learned many, many words, and the word Ikigai, when I first encountered it, it stayed in my mind. I was like a nerd in CERN, a computer scientist. I like the idea of compressing things. With the word Ikigai, it's very easy to tell it. We're having a friend or a family member that is feeling down. You can ask them, have you thought about your Ikigai? Or maybe you should think about your Ikigai. It's easier to say than you should think about your meaning of life. It's more compressed, this Ikigai. So that's staying in my mind. It's like, okay, I think these words should be known by everyone in the world, not, not only Japanese people. It's one of those words that I thought has to be exported, like geisha or katana or sushi. But I was in my 20s in Tokyo. It was amazing. I felt everything was beautiful in my life. I could find like almost any job in Tokyo. I had my adventures building startups. I got married with a beautiful Japanese woman from Okinawa. Everything was beautiful and nice. And I wrote my first book, A Geek in Japan. I felt indestructible. Like, okay, I can achieve anything in life. And then when I was 31, I started feeling really bad. It was in my stomach, in my intestine. I call it a weird illness, at least for the first year, because doctors, I was in many, many Japanese hospitals and they couldn't find what was the cause. I couldn't work for more than two years. I was feeling powerless. It was exactly the reverse of my 20s. And finally, one expert diagnosed it. It's a weird illness that is called SIBO. It's one of those illnesses that there is no solution these days. At the beginning, I started thinking like an engineer. I started getting into biotechnology, biotech startups in Tokyo. But I started also looking at ways, less engineering, not how to fix my illness, but how to find lifestyle changes, like meditation, having a more relaxed life, how to not feel the pain every day so much. And that's when I started reading existentialist philosophers, which basically says that you can have many beliefs. You can believe in a religion, you can believe in afterlife, you can believe anything, but there is one truth that we can all agree is that we are now in planet Earth and we are alive. 
we are here and we have a limited time in this life and we have to make the best of it. And that's the essence of existentialism. And how to make the best of it, we have to really have a meaningful time here in this life. That's where I started connecting all the dots in my mind and feeling how to find meaning in my life. And I was reflecting, okay, maybe in my 20s, I was just reacting to everything in life. Now that I can also be ill, something could happen to me, to anyone. So how do I find meaning in my life? And that's the genesis of how I put together existentialism, ikigai, the ikigai word, and put everything together. And it's not like I'm the inventor of the philosophy of Ikigai, but I just put many things together. Existentialism, Ikigai, logotherapy, and also the lifestyle of Okinawan people. And that's how the Ikigai philosophy was born. You just mentioned that you, your wife was from Okinawa, which I didn't know. Yes, I'm part of the story. No, I've never been, sadly, to Okinawa. It's my dream to go to, uh-huh. to Ishigaki and other places there. One day I will. But it's often mentioned places like Okinawa, of course, being one of the birthplaces for Ikigai. I don't know if that's true or apocryphal. But also I've heard other places around the world. I've read about Ikaria, which is a, a Greek island on the uh, Aegean. Yeah, so by the way, guys, if you want, to know you go to Mykonos you have your party and then you take a little ferry just east and it's a very short while and then you get to Ikaria and I didn't know I read that last night actually that there is also a place in Costa Rica the Nicoya Peninsula and I actually didn't realize that because I was actually living there for a little while in the early 90s so is that a DNA as a way of life? Yes it's in their DNA that's exactly the words so Japan is the place in the world where the average lifestyle is the highest in the world now The second one is Spain, but inside Japan, the place where they live the longest is Okinawa. And inside Okinawa, the place where they live the longest is a little village called Ogimi. Ogimi has 2,800 people. We went there and we lived with them, basically. We had their lifestyle. And they live in the middle of the jungle, next to the sea. They have a very community-based lifestyle. If you ask them about their ikigai, they all answer you immediately. Or in Japanese, they say atarimae. It's like they take it for granted. It's in their DNA, like you're saying. They don't doubt. If I experiment the same question in Tokyo, if I ask people, what's your ikigai? They don't know how to answer. I don't know about the other blue zones. I've never visited. I think I'm an expert now in Ogimi. I've been there many times. In fact, my last trip before covid was to Ogimi in December. We went there with National Geographic again to talk about Ikigai. By the way, now in Ogimi, they have my book everywhere. (laughs) They are very proud of it for some reason. So now it's becoming like the prophecy that the village is becoming the Ikigai village. That's the story. Yeah, the way of life aspect really spoke to me as, as well. And sometimes it is a kind of clash of ideas. You know, I was brought up in a family of doctors and my father was a geriatrician and obsessed with healthy aging. And that's probably one of the reasons why subconsciously the book really spoke to me. Another aspect of serendipity. And there's another one because, see, we're discovering stuff every time we record it. So my father was also a doctor, a surgeon, and I have the same exact feeling. And perhaps, and this is maybe mythical about my own self, but this Mediterranean factor, the fact that I'm Greek, you know, focusing on the present and enjoying, you know, each moment 
I know it's almost cliche about places like Greece or Lebanon or southern Italy or whatever. That's why you like Calpe. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> you just mentioned COVID. I mean, this is not a topic of today, but I think that helped me as well having this balance because you focus on what's here, what's there, not having mm-hmm. to focus on what's not there. And especially in time of COVID, there's been restrictions about what you can do or at least compared to before and enjoying whatever moment is just right there, right? And and also you just mentioned about Okinawa forming bonds with local people. And some of us, and I'm the first here, have this tendency of with our very international profile, we have people all around the world and we sometimes forget maybe about the very local communities, our neighbors and people that are very close to us. And at the time like COVID has probably helped us remember to be ultra local, I guess. I think now with COVID, many people are already also starting to think, okay, I'm all the time at home. I'm working from home. I'm making money. But what do I do with all this money? Because I cannot travel. So you start thinking a little bit more deeply. It's like, why I'm making money if I cannot use it? So these events in our life force us to think about what's the meaning of all this or what should be our ikigai or our focus. I think it's a good thing to reflect. You're completely right in that this kind of situation we're in kind of a, brings people together in a very powerful way as well. Um, Hector, I wonder whether we can just break down the kind of four components of ikigai and those four things. What do I love to do? What am I good at? What am I paid to do? And what does the world need? It's just such a simple set of rules to think about. Could you talk briefly about those and how that came together? It is very simple, but it's very universal at the same time. So let's start with what you're good at. So depending on our self-confidence, it can change a lot. Like when we are listening to other people's opinions, Especially when we are children, we get used to our teachers or our parents to tell us you're good at this or at that. And that kind of stays in your subconscious, even until you are an adult. And you have these beliefs of what you're good at or not. So one exercise is you can write these circles and do it by yourself. Write down what you think you're good at, but also try to think of things that you believe you could be good at, but you've never even had the chance in your life to try. Because we got a job or we are now running our business, maybe we could be good at playing the piano, but we've never even had the chance to do it. And then what you love is like with philosophies, I like mixing, I like the balance. So you can write down, I love eating chocolate while looking at the sunset or binging on Netflix on Sundays. That gives you freedom to fill that circle with whatever you want. And then the money one is very interesting because this depends on the person and the stage of your life. Young people is the one that they struggle the most or people who want to be an artist. But some other people, they don't worry about that circle. So if you are in that situation, the money circle should be also how you can give back the money to your community or to the world. And that connects us with the last circle is how to help the world. And this might feel overwhelming. The real meaning is how can you help? Like if you say to someone, especially these days that people are feeling lonely, if you send a message saying thank you or do you need my help, if you help one person or you inspire one person, that will kickstart something beautiful. So I always think like small things, small acts of kindness are very, very important. And you can write that also in what the world needs. It doesn't need to be like, I want to fund a charity or something like that. It's overwhelming. 
Because, for example, if you're an artist, I fall into this group. I focus so much on what I love, which is writing, that I forget about everyone, about my friends, my family. And sometimes I push myself, okay, the world needs me, and my friends need me, and my family needs me. I see those circles as trying to find balances or imbalances in your life very easily. And if you put all those things together, you can do the exercise of trying to write down your ikigai. And for me, it would be, okay, my ikigai is writing. That would be a bad ikigai because I'm not taking into account all the circles. So a good ikigai would be writing the best I can while enjoying what I'm writing because I really love doing it. And hopefully the words that I write will be enjoyed by people around the world and have an impact and improve their lives. And that will bring wealth to everyone, not only me. And now if you notice in this sentence, I've included one part of all circles. Oh, I'm curious now what Steve's ikigai would be if you could yeah. put the sentence together. See, Sometimes, I hadn't made that connection, Hector, to actually so pull that into a sentence. That's, that's such an interesting very, idea. That's a very powerful exercise. And it might not come to you now, but maybe in your, in your subconscious in the next weeks, maybe you will start having this sentence. I'm going to work on that. I think I know. You can do the same for organizations too. So for organizations, would you go the same way around it? Yes. For organizations, I haven't thought about it as deeply, but I'm being asked more and more. Because, you, you know, companies have a mission statement, and it's similar. There is a better book than mine for these things. I forgot his name. is The Power of Why. You realize if you look at the mission statement of companies like Apple, Google, they have elements of like really helping the world, which is one of the circles. One could be like we're building a SaaS product to, I don't know, improve accounting in companies. That's not very well defined. Yes. If you define it better, you see that everywhere these days. The book is by Simon Sinek, of course. That's, yes, that's Simon Sinek. Yeah. Start with why. It's a very, very interesting exercise to go through. And, and I was immediately connecting the dots with some of the companies that we work with and, and the kind of work that we do. And, you know, I was thinking of, of one of our companies who is providing intelligence to small businesses to help them make better decisions so they don't go out of business to keep them healthy. And what they're trying to do is to, is to reduce the failure rate in the, the small business world. And there's an incredible sense of kind of ikigai to that and if it can be articulated in a way where you bring those four things together that could be incredibly powerful i can feel a new book coming on there already because what we see in the startup world and so venture capitalists we're investing in companies that they start by obsessing with the problem they solve it's a pain it's an inequity in a market it's an inequality in an industry it's something that doesn't work right and they become obsessed with that but what happens is that that turns into a purpose where my purpose is now to, to solve that problem. And it becomes so all-consuming. Do you think that's the starting point? That's good for a while. And usually what happens with the startups is that you start with that and that's okay. It might be okay for one, two years because when you have a big problem, it gives you purpose, right? And that will keep you together for a while. But at least my experience is like when you see most of the startups breaking down and falling apart is usually because I'm generalizing maybe, but many times it's because that purpose was not good enough or long-term enough to sustain 
the organization together. And for example, co-founders both had a different vision. The people working start feeling that and people start living. And it's all because the belief on which the organization was built is starting to crumble down. And startups that survive, like, for example, WordPress or Basecamp, successful and in business for more than a decade now, because they are, for example, for WordPress is that they are making the best software possible to allow millions of people to publish whatever they want for free on the internet. And I think that thing is what keeps the WordPress team together, the company together, that common belief. And if you don't have this common belief, you can call it Ikigai or the mission statement, or you can call it the why of the company. If that why of the company is not really shared among everyone, it will start creating conflict, doubt, and people will leave. This is also true for any type of team or community to have a common vision. That common belief that kind of binds a small group of individuals and then a growing company together is, yeah, I think you're right. That's one of the fundamental differences between the successes and the others. But but how then? How do they stay true to that? I think that the key is to reveal that constantly, to keep it in mind. You can start with, okay, we have this problem. We are going to solve it. And while doing that, you will become probably the biggest expert on that field in the world. So there is no one else than you to start defining what's going to be our next step. The examples that come to mind might be cliche, but Microsoft, if you look at the history at the beginning, the first years, like what Paul Allen and Bill Gates were trying to do, they were just banging source code and trying to solve problems. They were getting a contract from IBM. They were writing basic for IBM. Okay, problem solved. There was not really a huge mission statement or guy. But then they started rethinking and putting things together. Okay, what's our next step? What's our next step? Let's build an operating system. And then next, Bill Gates said, okay, we are going to put a personal computer in everyone's home in, all around the world. That was powerful enough to put Microsoft through 90s and become one of the biggest companies in the world. And something similar is the history of Apple, at least when Steve Jobs came back. When he got back to Apple, he didn't really know what to do. But I can go back to Nassim Taleb. I like the concept of tinkering. So you start tinkering with ideas until the great idea comes. And when you find that, I think you can feel it. And I think investors can feel that too tinkering and trying things until you find your ikigai, your real why that will make you big. Our personal life is the same. Our ikigai might not be the same in our 20s than in our 50s. The worst is when you're not aligned. If you're in your 40s and you're living like in your 20s, you feel something inside you. Okay, this is not how I want to live now. You have your middle age crisis, and that's similar to a middle age. We can call it the middle age crisis in a startup. When you're still thinking like a 5, 10 people organization, but you should be thinking like 50 or 100 people organization and scaling up. And that's where the pain comes. When you start feeling that pain, that's good to feel that. But you have to figure out how to go over it. The analogy of the adolescent, the young adult is very well understood within the startup world. But actually the middle age crisis, that's a very, very powerful 
Since you talked about pain, Hector, I love this. And forgive me for my Japanese because it's very rusty. Now it's been 10 years. There's this proverb, which is uh, there are hardships and delights. When you talk about pain and this middle age crisis, I think at middle age, you realize that pain is as worthwhile as the delight. When you are in your 20s, you're maybe innocent and you just want to have fun. That's a delight part. And you understand maybe later yes. in life that mm-hmm. pain is what makes you what makes you grow. Also, the way in Asia they think about pain is very different from us. Yes, yes. I realize when you read translations from Buddhism, they talk about pain and suffering. It's not really that they are talking about suffering. Yes. And it's this feeling that makes you want to do something. And there is another saying that now you reminded me, Kurushimi no bigako, suffering is beautiful. Yes. And sometimes that can be negative. You know that Japanese, sometimes they can do something like in a meaningless thing and they're just suffering (laughs) and doing it. The way you see suffering is very different, or at least the way the word is used. In your um, second book, you, you reference success only comes before work in the dictionary. And I think about work as an element of suffering, right? You know, I love cycling and the success comes from the suffering and you have to go through that to get better at it. And business and work and life. And my daughter's trained to be a ballerina. She knows all about hard work and suffering. So um, getting back onto that kind of startup journey, you know, when I've got 10 people in my startup, we're all on the same page. Let's say we all know what the Ikigai is on an organizational level. 10 years later, I've got 10,000 people. How do we best engage them, not just overall, but for them to live individual lives that are happy and purposeful? Within the work context, I'm not trying to solve every aspect of people's individual ikigai. This is becoming a problem everywhere, I think, in the world. Even big companies like Amazon or Google or Apple, they could attract talent and keep it, but not anymore, I think. Because there is something about corporations. I don't know the solution, but people are feeling like, I can even say miserable. There is this book that I think the author unfortunately passed away recently, Bullshit Jobs. I love it. But it's real. I'm seeing this everywhere. Most of the people just quit after two, three years. The first year you're doing something new, you're meeting some new people, but then the fun is finished and you jump to another job. I think the companies are just thinking about optimizing with KPIs. KPIs are nice, but all the KPIs are focused on customer satisfaction, so a very product-focused company, or KPI is based on profit. But there is no KPI for your employees' ikigai or satisfaction. I think in Europe, you are better. But in Japan, for example, they are really bad at this. We're clearly seeing this trend of trying to find purpose for employees. Also, because probably the talent and the companies in which Notion invests, they want the best people. And the best people will opt in to companies, startups, and cultures that give them a sense of purpose. And we're seeing that a bit, again, with the times we're living through right now with COVID, with people staying at home, with people having to rebalance their work-life balance, if you so like, when suddenly some people realize, to come back to your earlier point, that their job was a bullshit job, 
that realization yes. comes very fast, especially when you have, you know, frontline workers who are helping the sick, et cetera. But also some people realize that, for instance, why was I commuting for so long? Hence the whole debate about a more flexible work approach between the office and home. I think it's all the same trend. People are realizing that they need a bit more balance in their lives. And at the end of the day, the best talent not to just talk about them, but the best talent will opt in, will choose companies that offer them a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, that ikigai that you mentioned. And I'm sure that Stephen, because yes. I know most of the companies that they invest in because I've met, and they're all these type of people. They have this drive, not only because they're founders, but also because they have a drive of making the world better or thinking about other people. There's something really powerful about Notion in their, in their portfolio. Sorry, I'm pandering to you, Stephen, right here. <laughs> You're very kind, Paul. And you know, we've, we've been fortunate to invest in some extraordinary companies. I, I think they are thinking more and more about how do I bring my people together in, in a way that makes a great place to work, a happy place to work, a purposeful place to work. And it's a powerful concept. To be more concrete, I think one of the illnesses now that, that you might not notice as a leader is that we are all humans. And when a company grows, people become very, very specialized. And there may be some people that are very, very talented and they get assigned to just, okay, just do this job. I think that's where meaninglessness starts to be felt by the employee, where an employee might be might blossom doing something else. They have their own ikigai. I have a feeling that there is a natural tendency of organizations to start over-specializing. I don't have a solution for that either because it's the best way to optimize your organization. But I think it's a little bit dehumanizing. There's an amazing book I read a year or so ago called Range, why generalists triumph in a specialized world. Totally agree with him. What's been really interesting is that we've done a lot of work into the construction of, of leadership teams, for example, of the world's most successful companies. And consciously or unconsciously, they embrace range range in terms of age on the leadership teams, range in terms of experience on the leadership teams, range in terms of specialisms in their leadership teams, range in terms of ethnicity. And it's the differences that come together in those teams that that are very, very powerful. Yeah, Um, you will have more innovation. Because you have that clash of ideas. What's very interesting in a SaaS company is that everything is interconnected. You know, just because you're working on this part of the business, if you don't know how the whole machine works and you're not being exposed to different ways of thinking about organizational design and structure and strategies and models, then then you're going to be really constrained. Something else you talk about a, a lot, again, in both books, is the concept of flow. What part does that play in your thinking and with Ikigai? The idea of flow was defined by someone called Mihaly. His second name is very difficult to pronounce. No, I can't pronounce it either. Yeah. Chiksamanti, Chiksamanti, something like that. Yes. He read Ikigai and he said that our chapter of flow is the best summary he has ever read about his work. Oh, praise. And that was a huge compliment because I went really deep. I read all his books on flow. And why I went so deep into flow is, again, going back to how do we make the best of our limited time and how do I make the best of one day today? Like I'm here with you, Paul and Steve. We are talking. My computer has just one application to talk with you. I'm very present here. I think I am here in flow with you. I'm not now thinking about like some worry what to have for dinner or something like that. I'm here with you in the present moment, enjoying it the most I can. 
And when you do that, we enter into this state of flow. And we've all experienced this. There are certain things and activities that it's easier to enter flow, like playing a musical instrument, ski or snowboard, or any type of sport. There is a moment you enter this state where you feel bliss. If you're running or cycling, for me, writing. If you're an engineer, it can be programming. Designing a business, you can also enter a flow. The problem these days is that we have a world of interruptions, notifications, social networks that are like delicious food around us and temptation. So, for example, for me, it would be I start writing and after 10 minutes, I get distracted. I don't know, I go to Instagram and then start chatting with my friends on WhatsApp. I don't do this anymore. This is something that used to happen to me. And I wrote this chapter for myself. Now I try to define flow times in my calendar, usually in the mornings, like the first three, four hours, flow time, uninterrupted writing time for me. For you, it might be something else. But after those three hours in the morning, anything else can happen. I will be satisfied and happy that these were like three hours of like very meaningful flow time. I feel very happy after those because it changes my mindset. Okay, I'm going to be just doing this one thing. I hope that everybody felt it at some point and I hope that everybody feels it often as well. For me, I almost use it as a compass. You mentioned just earlier about we all being humans and the over-specialization. And I know I'm an outlier in the way I've, I've done my career, but I always thought that my next venture would be in my hobbies. And I use flow because then I realize that some things that I do, I do them so well that I forget. It's not even about removing notifications. I forget the world around. Yes, you, you when forget I about them. Yeah, and it came many times to me, not like every day, guys, but this is something I need to work on because if I like it so much, there's a way that I can make a business out of it. So I, I use it in reverse. I said, okay, where is flow is probably where I have some type of vocation. You know, doesn't always end up being a business, but I think it's always interesting to have this kind of lateral thinking and to give yourself time to try things, even maybe within your job. Let's say you're in sales and maybe there's one bit of that job that you've naturally go into flow. And you're good at it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The more you do, you know mm -hmm. what you do, you know how to do it. It's almost like surreal, like it's a craft that you've mastered over over time because you're you're in flow, you know exactly how to achieve it and how to make the significance in that flow. It's hard to describe, but I think you describe it very well in your book, actually. So. I'm going to reread that chapter tonight. Now, some of the listeners might be thinking, okay, how do I find my Ikigai? Is one of those questions I get asked the most. And I think Paul just answered it. There are many techniques we give. In fact, in the Ikigai journey, in the second book, we give many ideas because there is no just one answer. But Paul gave one of the answers is that, for example, for 15 days, at the end of the day, you write down in a post-it when during the day you forgot about the passage of time, you felt you were in flow, and what were you doing? You write it down, and after 15 days, you will find patterns. As Paul said, maybe you're in a sales department and you believe you really enjoy sales, but the moments you are most in flow is when you are, I don't know, messing around with numbers in an Excel sheet and you love doing, I don't know, simulations with Excel. Maybe you, your guy is more something else. It's not really sales and maybe more like finance and getting into numbers. That's a good technique. What things get you into flow? Those things might have something to do with your Ikigai. 
And then you can start shifting your lifestyle to have more of those flow times. And coming back to your question, Stephen, about how do you engage your own employees? If the founder and the culture of the startup allows people to do this lateral shift, and we know many examples where people started in one job and moved laterally, not only simply in seniority. We know the famous 20% of Google, at least at the start, that allowed people to try other stuff. And this lateral movements within a company ensures that you get out the best of the best talent you already have, but also that that can create a spillover effect. Marisa Meyer comes to mind. I think she's one example. An engineer at the beginning of Google. Google was very good at that at the beginning. Many amazing people were created because of all the ingredients were there. People talk a lot about self-awareness, but I think what was something that really a bit freaked me out actually a little bit about your book I was reading last night, the second book, is self-observation as you're going to sleep and as you dream. That freaked me out because I read it just before going to sleep. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> but, but, that, but what you were talking about there is actually about observing yourself during the working day and then yes. reflecting on that. That's a really, such a simple device. This comes from philosophers. Know yourself. In fact, this is from Greece. Everything starts with knowing yourself. So take the analogy, you, you study something at university and then you start doing something, you start a startup or you start working somewhere and then five, 10 years go by, but you've never stopped to think, is that what you really love doing? Is that really who I am? Or I went to university and I studied these things just because my friends were doing the same thing or maybe because my parents were expecting me to do this, or maybe it's the reverse. Maybe you did something just to piss your parents, a reactive thing, but you've never gone down like who you really are and the self-awareness. And it's not an easy question to answer. It's like you, you always need to ask your friends or someone else. And if you can write a diary, it's better, but it can be something very simple like checkpoint. You write at the end of the day, the three best things that happened to you that day, and the three worst things. So the three worst things can be, I had a meeting with a client that was horrible. I don't like them. I hated doing this paperwork for two hours. It was horrible. Then the best things can be other things. Like I love spending three hours on my own doing this, blah, blah, blah. So at the end of the 15 days, again, you go back and you learn about yourself and your priorities. You might start finding patterns that you never thought, and that's part of you. That's how you are interacting with the world. So I believe in the power of writing down things. And some other people, it might be meditation or something like that to have some introspection on who you are and what you really love doing. But don't just keep going and going, reacting every day. That self-awareness is very important. And you find that everywhere in all Asian traditions like Shintoism, Buddhism, all Asian philosophers. They all start with meditating and introspecting and knowing yourself. Since you talk about introspection, one of the things that, you know, when I, when I moved to, to Japan, I didn't know anything about Japan. I was not one of these people that did either Japanese studies, etc. I just went there. Uh, and so I discovered while I was there. And after 12 hours, I knew this was a country for me. And it probably was something that spoke to me, this wabi-sabi, this ability to find beauty in imperfection. And I wonder, since you talk about introspection, that 
part, and I know it's balancing act, but parts of being happy and try to find fulfillment and purpose and meaning in your life for yourself is also, and at least for me it's the case, is accepting that some of the things I'm not perfect. Yes. And some of the things I will get better, I need to grow. But some of the things I'm not perfect, and I find generally actually people that are not perfect much more interesting, you know, and especially those who obviously admit it and say that they don't know. And I think that, at least for myself, it helps accepting that some of the stuff you are and some of the colleagues or friends or family are not perfect, but that's why it's beautiful, actually. Yes. This is something that really talks to me and talked to me when I was living in Japan. You just spoiled my next book. So, <laughs> that's, 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 so that's exactly how Japanese, in fact, something broken is considered more beautiful. Yeah, exactly. A broken cup is considered more beautiful than an original one in Japan. At a personal level, I also think exactly like you. In the end, like the imperfections of each human being is what makes us unique and it makes us more beautiful than someone else. Yeah. So if you have like an imperfection that could be used as a superpower, you might exploit it. I'm going to use this. It becomes your character. And also comes to mind now lately, we have like Elon Musk, and he obviously has many imperfections, but he uses those as superpowers. He's not like the best person like talking in public, but he's amazing at all the things and he's becoming like a character because of his imperfections, I think. If you think about it deeply, the concept of perfection itself only exists in our imagination or yes. in mathematics. In the real world, there is no perfection. It's not defined. There is no perfect human being. Japanese have the wabi-sabi thing, but they don't have the word perfection used as much in the daily life and also in the business world. They have the concept of continuous improvement. We all know Kaizen. Kaizen, yeah. Let's be a little bit better than yesterday. And things will be imperfect, but that's okay. We have to realize that there is no perfect human, so it's just kind of useless to even think about it. Even the word perfection, I would just remove it from the vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because that discussion on imperfection kind of ties into just one last thought I had, which was you reference Nassim Nicholas Taleb's anti-fragility. And I think you answered the question already to an extent, but how does Ikigai align with anti-fragility? Anti-fragile is that when you are hit by pain, you become stronger. With a very well-defined Ikigai, you can be robust. Whatever happens in your life, if you have meaning, have a sense of meaning, bad things can happen to you, but it will not affect you as much as if you have a meaningless life. That's how I see how Ikigai can make you more robust. So this is like by having an Ikigai, you will be more robust and hopefully you might be anti-fragile because you're having more serendipity in your life. But anti-fragility, I see it the reverse way too. We can apply anti-fragility concepts to help us find our Ikigai. And one of the concepts of anti-fragility is that, for example, if you do just one thing in life, you're putting all your risk in one bucket. And if that thing goes wrong, your whole life is gone. Whereas if you put your life in three buckets or maybe 10 buckets, one of the buckets might be very, very good and change your life. And I think you are very familiar with this in investing and in startups. You put money in many buckets 
you're trying to make an anti-fragile strategy. We are indeed. We're blessed with some extraordinary companies. Individually, they're incredible. And, and to be honest, what's been very interesting is how robustly they responded to the last six months, almost without exception. Mm-hmm. And almost without exception have said, actually, do you know, this is turning us into a better business. They became stronger. Hector, it's just been wonderful. And we could just go on and on. I mean, it's just been yes, such a fascinating felt. conversation. People, obviously, they can learn more. They could and should read those books. You've given some really good practical advice. Anything else you'd like people to do? There's one thing. There might be people listening. Oh, that's easy. I already know my guy. That's beautiful. And if after this conversation, you're having many questions in your head, that's a good thing. You already have an ikigai now. Just to find it. Good luck. Or gambate, like Japanese would say. <laughs> Hector, thank you so much. Thank I you. I really, yes. really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.